think you stand and worship team for the songs of praise. Uh, what a what a humbling song that song is. Uh, all God's purposes, all God's uh, uh, activities in this world is that He might be praised, and uh, we have a great part in and uh, in that in His purpose to. Uh, Share the gospel of Christ to the nations that all the nations might praise him. And I hope you're here and I hope you, you, if you have come here today and you're worshiping with us that you have come to know, uh, the salvation that is found through Jesus Christ and that you have that joy, uh, and that you might, that you desire to worship him and glorify him. Uh, that is a, is a, it is our you know, great joy as we worship the Lord in this way. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Well, we want to extend a, just a warm welcome to all of you uh, that are here visiting with us from uh, from San Francisco locally or from all the way in Canada, or I think I missed one of our guests, from Brazil as well, from every place in between. We're glad to have you worshiping the Lord together with us. We pray that this morning as you worship with us that you may be drawn closer to, uh, to the Lord, to love him more, and to, to know as you know him more. So if you have your Bibles, we continue to worship now. We took turn to the Gospel of Luke. Take your Bibles, turn them with me, Luke chapter 8 is will be, Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, and uh, we will be looking at this particular uh, short, really short miracle, uh, it's kind of neat, uh, just, a by, just a, as a by the way kind of comment, uh, our design team helps put together our, our slides every, uh, on occasions, and this is one of those that our design team put together, I just like, I just noticed this, oh, it's really neat, uh, today's, uh, uh, today's uh, this text is actually uh, illustrated by our, uh, our our cover slide, so that's kind of cool. Uh, thank God for our design team, those of you that have done that and participate and help our uh, our preachers uh, uh, have better graphics. Uh, appreciate that. Anyways, Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. And it's a short text, so I want to, we will read it. Please stand with me as we'll read God's word together. In our uh, elders meeting this past week, it was kind of neat, we just reflect. Yeah, it was this past week, or this past week or two. Uh, we were just reflecting upon this this one thought. Uh, we're talking about worship for whatever reason. And when do we hear the word of God most clearly? Uh, I may preach the word of God and explain the word of God to you, but it's really my, as man's, explanation of the word of God. We hear the word of God most clearly when we simply read God's word. When we hear, and this is what we, we do. And so let us hear what God has to say to us as we look at Uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. This is what we read in the Word of God. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And they stopped and they became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, a word that you have preserved, recorded, and delivered unto us today, that we, your people, might hear what you have to say, that we might learn of Jesus and understand who he is. And God, we pray that your spirit would do a work in teaching us your word, teaching us about Jesus, causing us to respond with love, a love for you, a love for Jesus, and also, Lord, a love for our fellow men. Father, increase in us 
uh, just a, a greater uh, appreciation and worship of Jesus. And we pray that you will be glorified in the preaching of your word now. Let your word go forth. Accomplish exactly that which you purpose to do in the hearts of everyone that is gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. Well, this past week, we marked the anniversary of 9-11. It's been 18 years since 9-11. And for many of us here that are of a a little older in age, we we will recall those days. We recall the terror, the helplessness, as we probably most of us watched or maybe listened on the radio, of the unfolding of the destruction and the uncertainty of where other attacks may come from on that fateful day. And from that day on, as many of us know, uh, our nation was changed. Uh, it was etched in our soul. Uh, we have never been quite the same. Uh, I remember those early days after that, there was a, really re- a renewal among the nation of turning to faith in God. Uh, people were praying. Uh, it was not something offensive to people. Oh, let's pray. But it was something that we all knew that we needed. Why? Because we realized as a nation that we were vulnerable, that we were helpless. That this, despite being the strongest, most mightiest, most wealthy uh, nation in the world, uh, probably with all sorts of resources at our disposal, we were unprepared. We did not foresee what was what took place on that fateful day. And what took place nationally on that day happens regularly throughout a, an average individual's life. Times when we feel completely helpless. Times when we find ourselves in circumstances that are beyond our control. Times that we are in great despair or distress because of the evil acts of men, natural catastrophes, life-changing illnesses, tragic accidents. And despite our best efforts, despite our best resources, we cannot prevent every tragedy from occurring. And the reason why we cannot is because we are finite. We are finite creatures created by God. We cannot... We have, we have a limited knowledge. We have a limited strength. We cannot foresee everything, nor can we control everything. And we live in this world, and we understand that eventually we come to accept this, this reality, that things are not all under control. But as Christians, I hope all of you are Christians here in this room, but the majority of us I know, we have an added perspective to this reality. Whereas we may find ourselves helpless because we are finite, we know that our Lord and our God is one who is infinite, one who is in control at all times, in command at all times, sovereign at all times. Nothing happens to us that he is not aware of, not in control of, not able to deliver us from. And we do not have to fear in the midst of helpless circumstances in life because we have faith in the presence and power 
of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. And this is what we find in today's passage. This is the lesson we learn. We learn that with Jesus, we have security in the midst of every storm of our lives. Every one of them. Because we have Jesus. As we have continued in the Gospel of Luke, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke in our studies, we have been following Jesus' ministry. And beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, we, we see him beginning a, another series of, of round of preaching through the towns and the villages of Galilee, proclaiming the coming kingdom of God and how people might enter into that kingdom. But here in chapter 8, verse 22, Luke starts a series of miracles in Jesus' life that demonstrate the power of Jesus. It's kind of interesting, these set of miracles, these three, four really miracles that we find, but they're often presented in three passages, uh, they are often found together. They're found in Matthew, Mark, as well as Luke, all the synoptics. And in them we see Jesus' power over nature, we see his power over demonic forces, we see his power over sickness, and we see his power over death. In each of these events, we, we find people who are in helpless circumstances, desperate, in distress, beyond human control. And Jesus' encounter with each one of these individuals demonstrates his divine power that kindles faith in the hearers of this gospel. Today's text involves Jesus performing this miracle where he calms the winds and the waves. And as we look at this, I hope it's familiar to you. If you've ever read the Gospels, it's a familiar story. It's a familiar picture. It's a very powerful picture that we would draw some lessons from this. And we're going to look at this passage. We're going to find four lessons that the disciples of Jesus will learn in the storms of life. As you kind of, as we've read it, you just kind of notice each verse, this really brings out a point. It's almost a, a back and forth. There's a, Jesus does this, and then they, that is his disciples, do this. Jesus does this, and they do this. Jesus says this, and they say this. Or they say this, and Jesus says this. So it's kind of a back and forth. Almost as one of our pastors just pointed out to me after, in the middle of service, it's kind of like a boat rocking. Even kind of just neat. It's kind of a back and forth. So each we'll see four points where we see Jesus, they, the disciples. Jesus, disciples, kind of contrasted throughout in these four points. All right? So four lessons we're going to find disciples use to learn in the storm's life. And these are four lessons that you and I will learn in the storms of life, okay? So let's take a look uh, at uh, lesson, uh, we'll look at lesson number one. Uh, <clears throat> verse 22, we observe the first lesson that disciples of Jesus will learn in the storms of life. And we learn, number one, we learn about following Jesus in the storm. We learn a very important lesson. As we go through storms of life, we will learn about following Jesus in the storm. Look at verse 22 with me. And it says, it begins with a, a, just a little statement. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So the story takes place on one of those days. One of those days, that is one of the days that Jesus is going about preaching the gospel. And he has just uh, finished probably preaching the gospel. And he wants to go over to the other side of the lake. Uh, Mark's gospel gives us a little, uh, or just as a, Kind of interesting note, Mark's gospel is, of all the parallels of this passage, the most detailed. And so I'll, I'll probably go to Mark and mention some things from Mark. Matthew's is also pretty detailed. Luke's, however, is the shortest. He's the most succinct. Uh, but to fill in the picture, we'll reference and describe some, some things that Matthew says, some things that Mark says. So uh, he, it's in the evening time, Mark tells us, that this takes place. So we're going to think about the winds and the waves in the evening time, where it's pretty dark. So Jesus and disciples, they get into a boat, 
And this would have been a, probably a fish, common fishing boat that uh, would have been all around, very common in the Sea of Galilee. And he requests that they go to the other side, other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what is significance about the other side of the Sea of Galilee? First of all, understand that the western shores of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, are basically where the Israelites live, where the, the Galileans live. Uh, uh, they were populated by, mostly populated by Jewish people, even though there was interspersed of, of uh, Gentiles among them. But the other side, when he goes to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, these are the cities that are primarily Gentile cities. They're Gentile-populated cities. And uh, it's just kind of one of the themes that we find throughout Luke, uh, that, um, that Luke is trying to can impress upon Theophilus, who is most likely a Gentile, how the gospel, yes, begins with Jews, but it's always been meant to go to the ends of the earth, always meant to extend to the Gentiles. And, we, and I think all of us can say amen for that, right? Yeah, at least the Gentiles here among us. Amen. Thank God for that. Because the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Now, when we look at this text, uh, we might ask, why, was, why would Jesus wish to go over there? Why does he wish to go over the seas? Does he want to preach the kingdom of God, particularly to the Gentiles? Is that what he's doing? And eventually he will, but he doesn't. Okay, he doesn't quite do that. We'll see that in the next uh, miracle next week. Matthew informs us that Jesus does so. He go, wants to go because he has just um, uh, he has just spoken to a large crowd because there's a, a large crowd around him. And so likely after a, a day of teaching this large crowd and they all want to be around him, he's probably performed miracles as well. And, and the crowds continue to follow him wherever he would go. People want to hang off his words. That Jesus is most likely tired. And that's why he's going to fall asleep in the boat. And at the end of a long day, he just needs to, to get away. He needs to get away from the crowds. Uh, he needs to go spend some time alone. He wanted, and this was a pattern of Jesus' life. We'd see whenever he was very busy, what would he do? He would go off into the wilderness to pray, to be by himself. And this was a pattern, and just to teach his disciples to rest. And, that, and we kind of just think about the, you know, uh, just uh, when we do that, when we go on a retreat, by the way, so I'm a shameless plug for our retreat, uh, we get away, right, to get away. We're all busy. I know you're all busy. We're all uh, San Franciscans here, people, we're kind of busy people. Uh, we sometimes need to take away from, break from our business. And spend some time with the Lord. And the retreat's free for that. Okay. Uh, so be like Jesus. All right. Now, so, but just as Jesus requested, um, the disciples follow his request. Notice, right? So in a short, just a short little phrase, so they, here's what the disciples do. Jesus asked them, let's go to the other side. And they, so they launched out. The disciples launched out. It's a real brief, but the subject changes to they, the disciples, they are now the ones doing the action. And it's quite fitting because the disciples, you know, remember, is this something, or let me, this is something that they would have been eager to do. Now, if I ask some of you, say, hey, let's go to the other side of, uh, let's go on a boat and go to the other side of, of the bay. You know, I don't, I don't think many of you are boaters. I'm sure a handful of you are boaters. But the most majority here, probably, you know, we're just city people. We don't, you know, we just know how to catch buses. Um, but if we got on the boat, we probably wouldn't know what to do, especially if a wind came along, we'd all drown. But not Jesus' disciples, right? Because this was like right up their alley. What did Jesus' disciples do? For them, they were fishermen, right? Four, if maybe five of the 12 disciples were fishermen. They were uh, based in Capernaum. They were fishermen by trade. And so they, they was, was this something that was right out their alley. They were eager to do it. Say, oh, they've been tired, they've been preaching, they've been watching Jesus, learning from Jesus, all stretching them, stretching their faith, things that they were, un, uh, that they were not comfortable with. But now Jesus says, hey, let's get on a boat, let's go to the side. So, all right, 
They were eager to do that. They were in familiar territory. But they didn't know what was coming, did they? They would become completely overwhelmed. But I want to make the point here. That these disciples come to face the storm of their life because they were following Jesus. It's they were following Jesus into the storm. And here's a lesson about following Jesus here. Just kind of a statement. It's true, just a, a reality. That following Jesus, a lot of us think that following Jesus means that we're never going to face storms in our life. Or at least when we're new believers. You think, if I come to faith in Jesus Christ, all my troubles are going to be just gone. I will have no troubles whatsoever. I will never have a child. And I'll, you know, I'll never get sick. I'll never die. Wait, no, you do. That does happen, doesn't it? Uh, but I'll, I won't lose my job. I'll never have any fights with my kids. I'll never have fights with my spouse. I'm never going to have conflicts with my coworkers again because uh, Jesus will remove all the storms in my life. I'm never going to face tragedy. I'm never going to you know, uh, uh, lose something that was real precious to me. Uh, I'm never going to go through whatever. You name the storms. But that would be wrong, right? Rather, we come to understand that following Jesus will often lead to storms. In fact, it will lead to persecution for those who follow Christ. We can ask our, our brethren, our, our fellow believers in, in countries way in the Middle East or in Asia or in Africa today, and you will discover from them that persecution, storms are not only occasional, but in fact daily in their lives. It's because they're following Jesus. But even more, all of us as Christians, all of us Christians face the storms of life, don't we? We face disease. We face tragedies. We face accidents. And various other things. This is the first lesson that every Christian needs to learn. That following Jesus will often lead to storms. And if we don't learn this, then when the storms hit, what happens is that we, our faith begins to waver. Because we we're under this false understanding that we're not supposed to have problems. So then, why do I have problems? Why do I don't have enough money? Or why do I not have the job I want? Why do I not have the spouse that I want? Why do I not have this or that that I expected to have, a blessing? But I don't have that. We start asking, why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? How would you allow this to happen to me? We start doubting God. See, following Jesus doesn't mean the absence of storms in life. Rather, following Jesus means following him into and in the midst of the storms of life. But make no mistake, he will be with you. The difference is for Christians, Jesus will be with you in the storms. And that will make every difference. Now, disciples follow Jesus into this divinely appointed storm. And there we learn a, a second lesson in verse 23. And that we learn this, that we learn about the peace of Jesus in the storm. We learn about how we might have peace when we face the storms of life. Verse 23 gives a very stark contrast between what Jesus is, uh, what happens to Jesus on the boat and what the disciple, happens to the disciples on the boat, their experience. First of all, look at what Jesus, happens to Jesus on the, on the boat in verse 23. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Jesus is uh, told, we're told by, I think, Mark, that he's in the back of the ship. He's, on a, he's asleep in the back of the ship. And here we find a, really a picture of the humanity of Jesus. Now, all of us uh, may understand that Jesus is God, but Jesus is also 100% man. And here, just as he needs, uh, he needs food to live, he needs water to drink, he also needs sleep to recuperate. 
He's had an exhausting day, and he leaves the navigating the boat to his disciples, and he falls into a deep sleep. If anyone ever questions Jesus' humanity, you would not have to look any further than this passage. Why would Jesus need sleep if he was just if he was not man? But it shows that he's a man. He's a human being, just like you and me. Just as he is also 100% God. Jesus needed physical rest. Now, but the fact that he sleeps through the storm indicates something about Jesus. That Jesus is a man at peace. Okay? Jesus is a man who knows peace. Because of his relationship with God the Father, he sleeps through this. But while Jesus has peace as he's in this midst of the storm, the disciples, on the other hand, don't have peace. They know distress. They actually are going to have a, they're going to panic. And we see what happens. We can understand why. Because there's this storm of a lifetime that appears in their lives. We read, it, we read on in verse 23. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be endangered. Now, if you know the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is a small little lake. You know, it's, it's not that big. Uh, it's a lake that's shaped like a harp, kind of. And so it's 13 miles long. And uh, eight miles, kind of from west to east, at its at its greatest width. But what's unique about this lake is, though it's small, it's located quite low. It's at 700 feet below sea level. That's pretty low. I mean, just think of the ocean, 700 feet below that. That's you know, that's the depths of the, where the Sea of Galilee is. But it's surrounded by uh, just cliffs or uh, hills and mountains, and some rising up to 1,200 to 1,500 feet above sea level. And so from the hills and to the north, of course, is, is a Mount Hermon, from which when its ice melts would then lead into, feed into the Sea of Galilee, providing fresh water. And so because of the high of the hills, the, the narrow valleys, as well as the, the low level of the lake, it was very susceptible to these sudden winds as the waves, uh, winds would come through over the mountains and then they would come rush down the hills and then onto the surface of the water, creating huge waves. It's not like the ocean where you can kind of just watch the waves and they just kind of come along. But this was, it's unpredictable, which depends on which way the wind's coming. And on this evening, there would be a, a sudden and quite violent storm. Uh, it was, in fact, a, a violent storm greater than any of the disciples had ever known. But this wasn't just an ordinary windstorm. It's not just an average windstorm. It was a fierce gale of wind, as Luke describes it. The world gale can be translated as a whirlwind or a hurricane even. It has an idea. So it's like a, the great whirlwind of a wind came down, causing the waves to increase and rise above uh, to, to great heights, and then and even crashing over the sides of the boat. And you can just imagine the boat as it's going through the pits of which way it's going. And just the, the front of the boat goes up high, and the, the back of the boat goes low, and you, you feel like you're at one of those rides at uh, Disneyland or something like that. And it's, uh, on top of that, water is coming over the sides. Now, you can be sure that these were experienced fishermen. And they would have, they uh, did their best, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Though they were being swamped with water and they were in danger of their lives, they tried their best to, to probably navigate the seas, navigate the shore. But even the res- uh, as we see the response of these experienced fishermen in verse 24 will indicate that this was a storm unlike any that they'd ever encountered. It was one of those times that even despite their experience, despite their greatest efforts, they were completely helpless. And the peace of Jesus is contrasted with their helplessness here. They are in panic, but Jesus is at peace. 
And when, as we'll see, the very source of peace was sleeping right there in their boat. He was with them all along, but they were experiencing, were, were panic, would, be, would begin to panic. Like Jesus, we can have a similar peace in the midst of storms. And this is the, the kind of the next lesson, what we learn. That the key to this peace is remembering that Jesus is with you. Here they are, they, they begin to panic, and they start trying to do everything they can in their own power to, to get themselves out of the storm. When the very first thing they should have done was go to Jesus. They eventually will, but at a last moment of desperation. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes when we get into trials, when we get to face some ills, particularly, for instance, you get a diagnosis from a doctor because of some disease or illness that you face, and uh, you, all of a sudden, what is the first thing you do when you get home? You Google it, right? Okay, we do that, right? We, we go, oh, I'm going to find out all, you know, I'm going to find out WebMD, I'm going to just, oh, I'm going to find out this, oh, that's why I have it, this is what I can do, I'm going to change my diet, I'm going to go to Reddit, I'm going to find everything I can so I can defeat this disease. Maybe that's just me, I don't know. But we do that. When the first thing we should have done is turn to Jesus. But anyways, when we know, because Jesus is with us, the key to the peace is remembering that Jesus is with us. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who commands the wind and the waves, he's with you if you are a believer in Christ. He will give you his peace in the midst of storms. And it's completely normal to be fearful, to be anxious, to feel despair and distress in the face of storms where we are completely helpless. It's completely normal. But that is meant to, to cause us to, to, it is meant to cause us to turn to Jesus because you will not you may look for peace, you might, might try to find peace in your abilities, or maybe in your possessions, or in your knowledge, or in your strength, or in other people that you know. You may look for peace in them, but you, you will only find peace in the midst of your helpless storms of life in Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus promises, in fact, peace. John fourteen twenty seven. peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, knowing Jesus is the key to finding peace in every storm. And if you know Jesus, then remember that he is with you in every storm. Whatever storms of life you're facing, Jesus is with you. If you you belong to him, you can count that he will be with you. You can remember the, the, the great shepherd's psalm. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's what comes from having the hope of knowing that Jesus is our shepherd, that we've trusted him as our Savior and Lord, that he's with us. He'll be with us in the storms. He'll be with us in the darkness. There's peace. Yesterday, uh, I attended a funeral. And uh, funerals are sorrowful times generally. You've lost a loved one and there's nothing you can do to bring them back. And, but as I attended this funeral for this family that oh, we, we know and we love, there was a peace among the family members. They just lost their father, their husband. But a great peace they had in 
in the service and the words that they spoke and expressed. Why? Because they had Jesus. They knew that Jesus was with them. They knew that their father, their husband, knew Jesus. Jesus gives us peace in every storm. Now Jesus will comfort you. Jesus will bring peace to you in every storm. And sometimes, as we find in our in miracle here, Jesus will reveal his power to even deliver you from those storms. And he can, and he may. He doesn't promise it, but he may. And we see that power, of, and that's the third lesson we learn, that we can learn about the power of Jesus in the storm. The power of Jesus. Verse 24, there's now a contrast between the, the helpless panic of the disciples and the divine power of Jesus. First, the panic of the disciples. Look at uh, verse 24. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So this is a, they're, they're quite perishing. In the midst of this great storm, the disciples are frantic. The wind is too strong. The waves are too high. The boat is filling up. They will drown in these waters if nothing is done. Panic has probably stricken them. Death is in their sight. And they, then they, they look in the back and, and they see Jesus sleeping, their teacher. <laughs> and so, and uh, the storm, they are so desperate that they're driven to the very first thing they should have done is that they run to Jesus and they cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. We're going to die. Mark's parallel record has the disciples saying this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew records, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And it's, you can imagine the different words reflect the different disciples, each saying they're you know, crying out to the Lord. But they're all crying out. They're all going to Jesus. And they're, rec- they're crying for him. They're just exclaiming to them, save us, we are perishing. In fact, I left out a more important part. Matthew's, uh, Mark's parallel record says, the disciples have saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And notice the attitude. They're going through the the greatest storm in their life, and they think, as they look at Jesus asleep, that Jesus doesn't care about them, that they're perishing. And that's an attitude that sometimes we have, right? When you're facing the storms of life, Sally, sometimes we think that maybe Jesus doesn't care because our circumstances aren't changing. We can't get out of it. And maybe we may be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't care. Or even worse, we think that Jesus is not aware. We think that Jesus doesn't care about your circumstances. That somehow Jesus, maybe he does know, but he's not going to do anything about it. So he's abandoned you. That you're on your own. But of course we know this is not true, right? Jesus always cares. He's promised to never leave nor forsake you. If you are a child of God, he'll always be with you. And he is aware, intimately aware, of everything about your situation. In fact, he's in control of every element of your situation. So they cry out, they run to Jesus. Now and they cry, they were perishing, and they want Jesus to save them. It's just kind of just funny, I think about it. These experienced fishermen are running to a carpenter to save them from a storm. And it's really because it's not just things. Right? He's the Son of God. 
And uh, so we see then Jesus' response. Jesus, how he does, what, how he, what he does. And he got up, it says. And just, these phrases are just stated so succinctly, so shortly. He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And they, and they stopped and it became calm. Getting up from his sleep, he immediately rebukes the wind. So he speaks a word of the wind and the waves. And just as soon as his words come out of his mouth, the wind and the waves stop. It immediately becomes perfectly calm. The change is quite dramatic. It's not like when, uh, the, the picture here is that it's not like you know, when, uh, when the wind stops blowing that the waves will still kind of splash a little back and forth and they kind of slowly, 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 you know, and then calm down. But the words here, it's, it's like a, the tense comes, that it instantly happens. And the, the wind and the waves just stop just like that. And it was calm just like that. Instantly, one moment, you're, the wind's in the next moment, it's calm, sunshine. No waves, no wind. And it's a miracle because Jesus is behind it. It reveals Jesus' authority and power over the natural world. It's, it's telling, revealing here that Jesus demonstrates this power because throughout the Old Testament, power over the nature was the sole domain of God. The stilling of seas and the silencing of the wind was God's work. Psalm 50, Psalm 65, verse 7, says that it is God who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Psalm 107, verse 28 and 29, which we read for our call to worship, describes how God is the one who, when, they, when the people cry out to him for help, he brings out his help because he caused the storm to be still so the waves of the sea were hushed. This is what God does. But here Jesus does so. What does that tell us about Jesus? Jesus calms the storms with a mere command. He spoke it and it happened. We who have believed in Jesus are not surprised because we understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the creator. He is the one who existed in eternity past with God the Father. He is the one who was there when he created everything into existence out of nothing by merely his word. What we learn here is that Jesus has the power over every storm in life. Jesus is in control of the storm. He is in command of the storm. He may choose to cause it to stop by his power, but by that, or by that same power, he may choose to strengthen you to endure the storm. The disciples thought they were in danger, but what they, didn't, what they had forgotten until they cried out to him, is that with Jesus on board, with Jesus with them, they had security. See, our greatest security is not found anywhere else but in Jesus. He's our greatest security. You are most secure when you are with Jesus. There's nothing that's going to, that is in this life that happens to you, that storms that rage, that is not out of his control. Not in his command. Think about that. The next time you're facing a helpless circumstance or trial. The problem of the disciples, of course, is that they had not learned to run to Jesus first. They had not learned to trust him. And that's our problem oftentimes as well. We find this in the fourth and final lesson. And that's a lesson, as we find and learn in the storms of life, that we learn to have faith in Jesus in the storm. As soon as the storm is calm, Jesus now turns his rebuke to his disciples. 
And he said to them, and we find in verse 26 or 25, where is your faith? Very succinct statement here. Everything looks very succinct. He just simply emphasized, where is your faith? Why haven't you put your trust in me? Why don't you, why didn't you put your, believe in me? We can, get a little, we can get a little filler from Matthew and Mark. Matthew records Jesus saying, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Well, Mark says, records, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? We see a, a connection from the other Gospels, a connection between fear and lack of faith. Fear and lack. The disciples' fear was a reflection of their lack of faith in Jesus. And it's so ironic because by this time, the disciples had seen Jesus heal many, of, many varieties of illnesses. He had cast out many different types of demons. He had even raised a widow's son from the dead. They had witnessed these miracles with their own eyes. They saw it. It's not like us just reading it in the Bible and by faith believing it. They saw it right there, right in their presence. They were eyewitnesses of these things. They couldn't have forgotten them, but yet they didn't have faith. See, the problem is not for these disciples, not a lack of knowledge. It's not like they didn't know that Jesus had done all these things. Their problem, and oftentimes our problem, is that we lack faith. It is a lack of faith. It is a little faith that he rebukes them. In fact, it implies that they have almost no faith. Where's your faith? And the storm revealed it to them. And here's the lesson. That just as the storm was used of God to instruct the disciples, so the storms of life are used or designed by God to instruct you. The storms of life are God's means of testing and revealing the condition of your faith in him. It shows you the, what, your faith, whether it's genuine or not. And what's more, when you trust the Lord in the storms of your life, your faith is strengthened by him. See, for the believer... God uses the storms of life. He uses the trials, the difficulties, the tragedies to strengthen your faith in Christ. Many of us are familiar with James chapter 1 verse 3 where it speaks about the testing of your faith produces endurance and that endurance results, has a perfect result in basically producing spiritual maturity. When we're mature, we don't lack anything because we have a faith that always trusts in Jesus. But there's another passage that I'd like to point you to. And that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 9. I throw it up. You can look it up in your Bible as you wish. I want to read it for us. You see the, the purpose of trials. In this uh, in background, Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor, particularly in the Roman Empire, that were under persecution for their faith. And they were being persecuted by the Roman emperor, Nero. And he had this terrible reputation for persecuting Christians. And he would arrest them and he would bring them to the Colosseum where they'd be eaten by lions. Or sometimes he would just wrap them up and just light them up like torches. This was a time when they were going through these kinds of trials because of their faith. And this is what Peter writes to them. These who believers were going through trials. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. And we find here that we have reason to rejoice, right? This is James 1 again. Consider all joy when you encounter trials. If necessary, you've been distressed by these various trials. Why? Peter writes, so that the proof of your faith. I see that's the same word that's found in James. That's the testing of your faith. It's actually the word that means testing. A testing that's where you take a piece of metal and you burn it with fire. You put it under fire so that it burns off the impurities. And what's revealed, what remains is that which is pure, usually pure gold. It shines forth like gold. And that's what God is doing through trials. He allows trials in our life. He, he's in control of trials in your life so that it will purify your faith. It will show you, test and prove it. You want to know if something gold is, is real? You got a piece of gold? You want to know it's real? Put it to fire. Put it to fire and it will melt and you'll see if it's still you know, liquid gold, then you got gold. Otherwise, if it's fake, it's going to burn out. And that's what it is. It helps trials to reveal to you whether you have Genuine gold faith. You know? really, when we talk about faith, there's really just two types of faith in this world. There's a false faith. There's a true faith. A false faith is a faith that comes, is, uh, that man, we have faith, we, but it's something of our own doing. It's our own decision. But a true faith is a faith that's given by God. A, God, a God-driven faith. And a true, and a, a false faith, when tested, when put under fire, will wither because there never was any faith, and they will fall away oftentimes. It's like the soil that, uh, the soil that was basically uh, the, uh, choked out by the, by the thorns, the thorny soil. But genuine faith, faith that's given by God, when it's tested through fire, it will remain, it will endure. It will shine forth like gold. It will become, it, will be, it, is, a, it is an imperishable gift from God. And what will happen is you, you will be blessed because when you go through trials, it's, it's generally not pleasant, okay? Nobody. But when, as you go through those trials and you find that the faith that God gives you strengthens you through those, file, through those trials, what do you usually do? You generally praise God. Even as you might be weeping, you, you praise God because you know that with Jesus, you, with Jesus in your life, you're, you are trusting in him. And you're realizing this is the faith that God gives. And the faith that is genuine, that's true, that endures, is a faith that saves. And you'll, be, you'll praise God. You'll give him glory and honor. Why? Because this faith that you have that's tested through trials, that, sh- that endures, will reveal a faith that uh, results or leads, as, that, it, that will lead ultimately to the salvation of your soul, to your entrance into the kingdom of God. There's a, you know, there's a John... Uh, John Piper kind of thing, don't waste your life. Or I just read an article about pastors, don't waste your, your dry seasons. Well, uh, I'm going to coin this, don't waste your storms, okay? Don't waste the storms of your life. God gives you storms, not just so they, oh, I just got to endure through it. But rejoice when you go through trials. Consider it joy when you go through trials and the storms of life. Because through that, God is intended to cause you to turn to him in faith. To increase in your faith. Jesus here rebukes disciples for their lack of faith. But the storm did reveal to them something about Jesus. Something that they did not quite grasp until now. They had now seen a, a man do that which they thought only God could do. And we read on in the verse. And they were, he asked them this question, where is your faith? But notice they don't respond to him. They don't say, oh, well, sorry, Jesus, we, we didn't have any faith. They were instead fearful and amazed. 
And they were speaking to one another, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Sometimes we see this word fear. They were fearful and amazed. They say, oh, this is reverential fear. But this was probably a good, healthy fear, fear. Because he, they were afraid for their life when the, when the storms and the winds and the waves were crashing in on them. And all of a sudden, Jesus just speaks with one word. And all of a sudden, the, the waves and winds are gone. They ought to have been afraid of Jesus. This man who's sleeping in their boat, in their presence. Because only God does what, the, what he just did. You know, if I had a gun right... Okay, no, I say I don't. But say there's a, you go somewhere and there's a gun, okay? You would say, oh, you should have a healthy fear of that gun, right? Say, oh, because that, that gun could be loaded. It could be dangerous. It could hurt someone. But it would be a little more... Who should you be afraid when it's in someone's hand? Not the gun, but the person who wields that power. How much more when Jesus wields the winds and the waves by his word? And can you imagine the disciples just felt this fear of him, this reverence of him, and yes, terror of him. And they were in awe of him because of what he had just done. It was a revelation that he is just more than just a prophet, more than just a man, more than just a a godly, uh, uh, one of God's messengers. This man was not just a great prophet. He is God. He is the son of God. And so the, the question the disciples then ask is the question that Luke wants his readers to ask. And it's the question that he wants you to ask. Who then is this? Who is this man? That commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now do, uh, try something just for fun, okay? Uh, we live, thank God, San Francisco, we live in, by the ocean. Next time you go to Ocean Beach... This is all this is a witnessing tool, okay? I want you to go out there and just say, just command the winds and the waves. Say, I command you winds and waves, just stop and be still. Say it real loud, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, I know, I'm a little adjusting, but people will probably come out and say, what are you doing? You're, they probably think you're nuts. And then you say, oh, you know, I'm just doing what Jesus did. Uh, by the way, do you believe, have you believed in Jesus? <laughs> okay, now, don't, it probably won't work that way, but you know what I mean? You can shout real loud, you can say it real sincerely, but not a single one of us, when we go out to the ocean and we speak to the winds and the waves, and they are stilled, because we're not God. We're simply men. But Jesus, because he is God, commands the winds and the waves, and they obey him. They obey him. And that's why you can put your faith in him. You can put your trust in him, because he has the power to deliver you, and he has the power to strengthen you in every storm. He is in command of your storms. He is commanding the storms that are raging in your life right now. If you're here and, and you, maybe the Lord, and you don't know Jesus Christ, but you're here, then I would imagine that you're here because there's something going on in your life. That you would come to church, where you learn about a God who has created you and has all these rules that your laws that we find in his book. What's it all about? Are you willing to listen to it and hear about it? But God, I want to tell you right now that God has designed the storms in your life that would bring you here seeking, searching. Why? Because he wants you to respond in faith. 
He wants you to learn like disciples do. That ultimately when you're helpless, when you cannot control your circumstances of life, there's only one person to turn to, and that is to Jesus. And you cry out to him, and you call him the master and the Lord. And you say, help me because I'm perishing under this storm. Cry out to him. And God sent his son, Jesus, to deliver us from the greatest storm of life. Not just for these, through these, through these circumstances, but from the greatest storm of life. And the, is the life, the storm that waits after we die. And that's the wrath of God upon all who have refused to obey him. And God, but God made the way through his son, that through his death on the cross, in place of us, so that whoever believes in him, can be delivered from that storm, will not perish in that storm, but have eternal life. And that's yours. If you're, you're, not, you're searching, and that's the promise. God wants you to respond in faith, just as he wants us believers to respond in faith in the midst of storms. Well, these are the four lessons. Simply, let me conclude. Storms in life, brothers and sisters, are inevitable. Right? You cannot avoid them all. You will face them eventually, if not regularly. And the question for you to consider is this. In whom do you place your faith Faith in the midst of storms? Do you place it in yourself, your abilities, your knowledge, your strength, your skills? Or will you place it in Christ? Will you place in the one who commands nothing? Or will you commit in the one who commands the very winds and the wave. Jesus, the all-powerful God, is in complete control of your life. He's complete control of the storm that's raging in your life. He's, he's the creator, and because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He holds all things together by his power. And he will hold you together in the midst of your storm. I'll end with an illustration of how we need to trust and Jesus in the midst of storms. And it's a story of a familiar story of Horatio Spafford, a hymn writer. And uh, for some reason, they were going to travel uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. And so he sends, uh, he could not go. He had some business uh, affairs. So he sends his wife and four daughters first across. And you know, many of you know the story. Uh, there was a wind and waves, a great storm that struck that, uh, that ship. And the ship uh, basically struck to pieces and, and sank. Um, and in that storm, Horatio Spafford lost all four of his daughters. Only his wife survived. She was rescued. And she wrote a letter to him when she was, uh, had crossed. Uh, and she wrote to basically explain to him that the four daughters had died. She alone survived. So you can imagine the, the sorrow of this, as, even as a, those of that our parents particularly understand the, the grief of losing a child, much less four children, all of our children. And he's... And he crosses the Atlantic to, um, to go and comfort and console and be with his wife. And as he's writing across the Atlantic, he writes the, pens, the, the familiar words to the great hymn, It is well with my soul, right? He writes these words, and we'll end with this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, we have Jesus Christ with you in the midst of your storms that rage in your life. May you discover that God has granted you faith to put it in him. That he is your peace, that he is your security. 
so that you can say, as Rachel did, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And thank you for the reminder from this, this miracle of Jesus of how he does command the winds and the waves, that he is the Lord of the storms, the Lord of all creation, and he's the Lord of everything that rages in our lives. Father, we thank you for the, the hope that we have, that we, he's given us peace, that in him we have security, that we can put our faith in him and turn to him in the midst of our storms. Lord, I pray for anyone here who finds himself at this very moment feeling helpless, lost, despairing, and distressed. May they look in this passage an example of what they may do by putting their faith and hope in the one who will be with them in the storms. And that they, the, the testing and the proving of their faith will shine forth as gold that they will be able to rejoice and give you praise and glory and honor because the faith that you give them is the faith that will endure and shine forth and be and allow them to endure through these various momentary trials. And God, we pray that, uh, that you would uh, cause us to take this truth, these truths and share them with others, Lord. That maybe through them, we know that the, much of this world understands that they cannot avoid every helpless circumstance. And we pray that you would bring us alongside people in our world that are going through such trials. That we might share with them the hope of Christ. Open doors of opportunity for us, Lord, we pray. So that the gospel of Christ might be made known. And your glory might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Sisters.